Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact. Ooh. Feels on point. Apt. It feels apt. Of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I am your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm your host, Aviv Rubenstein. Armageddon. The 1998 science fiction action bonanza starring Bruce Willis is what summer blockbuster dreams are made of. Famously directed by Michael Bay, Armageddon dared to ask the question, what if NASA sent a ragtag group of deep core drillers to plant a nuclear bomb within an Earth-destroying asteroid? How would that go? Armageddon's classic rock-driven soundtrack also featured several songs recorded specifically for the movie, including Aerosmith's schlocky power ballad, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, originally written by songwriter to the stars, Diane Warren. How did a song Diane Warren envisioned for Celine Dion end up in Aerosmith's hands? And why is Aerosmith so deeply embedded in this movie which also famously starred Steven Tyler's daughter, Liv Tyler. And what did it do for Aerosmith's career in the 90s? Where was Aerosmith's career in the 90s? How did this song define an era of high school dances? How did not one, but two giant asteroid movies get made in 1998? And exactly how much of Ben Affleck's career does he owe to Titanic and $20,000 worth of dental work? <laughs> His teeth are so white! Oh, if you like our tooth talk last week, get ready for part two. Oh my of God. Celebrity Teeth, the expose. All this and more on an explosive episode of InSync. You don't want to miss it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Rachel. Aviv. Why are we talking about a summer blockbuster with a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes? Is it because this is the 25th anniversary of the asteroid blockbuster? Maybe. But what is your history with this movie? I didn't see Armageddon until I was well into adulthood. Um, (laughs) I'm serious. When it came out, I think I was all of 11 and did not care. Like, I don't think I would have been able to handle this movie at 11 because it is chaotic. It is. There's a lot of movies. It is chaotic. But you couldn't turn on a radio station, any radio station. Like I'm including classic rock in this, because Aerosmith was in the '90s a classic rock band. Technically, they, yeah, they were already out of vogue. They were already out of vogue. But I don't want to miss a thing. 
was on so much. It just ruled the radio. I have like the most vivid memories of being in my New Jersey kitchen growing up, listening to this song on the radio and hating it. I didn't like this song. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is a thing. Hope it goes away soon. It def- Yeah, I-, I definitely have more love in my heart for it now than I did at the time. Yeah. Um, but it was like the final song at all the high school dances, which I guess for Oh my God, it was, yeah. <laughs> in, the- in the generation above us, that was like Stairway to Heaven. For us, it was, I don't want to miss a thing. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about Armageddon and it's like sound alike comparison deep impact and why armageddon was so much more successful and i don't think it can be discounted that the song had a lot to do with that yeah you know what movie actually made me like i don't want to miss a thing (laughs) do you can you guess is it uh the summer i turned pretty well close (laughs) we were talking about that off off watching watching the summer i turned pretty season two i was telling aviv how there's a high school band that plays they do a cover of both I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and also Lit. like the My Own Worst Enemy? Yeah, they Hell do yeah. a cover of My Own Worst Enemy, but but when they're playing I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, the singer's girlfriend is like standing in the front row looking all happy, and she's like, he wrote this for me. but <laughs> And her friend is like, no, this is from the movie Armageddon. That is a plot point in Noah Baumbach's <laughs> The Squid and the Whale. Jesse Eisenberg oh like, pretends to have written Comfortably Numb. And that is a movie I absolutely hate. So anyway, f- first, <laughs> let's do a quick recap of the plot of Armageddon. An asteroid the size of Texas is barreling toward Earth. And the director of NASA, question mark, Dan Truman, played by Billy Bob Thornton, pre his marriage to Angelina Jolie, has to enlist the help of Harry S. Stamper, an oil man, a roughneck, in order to send a team of astronauts into space to drill into the asteroid and drop a nuclear bomb onto a fault line. Completely logical so far. The only problem is these fancy NASA boys have the wrong stuff and can't drill worth a damn. And Harry (laughs) is left with no choice but to convince NASA to let him bring his own oil drilling team, complete with the fresh-faced Owen Wilson, Michael Clark Duncan, a played-for-laughh statutory rapist rockhound oh played by Steve Buscemi. That really didn't age well. Nope. <laughs> and the, the guy who played the cook in Down Periscope, Ken Hudson Campbell. I never saw that. That's not but good. I say, but I say that a lot. I say that a lot on this podcast. I never, I never saw that. For... For his part, Steve Buscemi claimed that the role of Rockhound was pitched to him as a heroic geologist, and then he eagerly accepted, and he was, at the time, typecast as a lot of lowlifes, and so he said that after he had been cast in the role, they re- they wrote in all of the sleazy characteristics into the script. Oh my god, Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he, uh, he was not super happy with his role. Oh, yeah. The only person Harry can really trust with a mission this dangerous is AJ, played by Ben Affleck, one year removed from Goodwill Hunting. And the only problem is that AJ has been sleeping with Harry's daughter, Grace, played by Liv Tyler. If you can believe it, an asteroid oil driller movie sidelines basically its only woman character. But Liv Tyler's still pretty electric as Grace Stamper. She definitely makes the most of a limited role. So let's talk about Ben Affleck's teeth. 
I'm so glad we're talking about this because I never noticed before my last watch. I watched this last week and I was like, how have I never noticed Ben Affleck's teeth? What are those veneers? They are veneers. So so if you remember last week, we talked about Tom Cruise's monotooth and how sometime in the 80s, he he also had like some, uh, some dental work done. So that was credited to my friend and group chat member, Natalie Beir. And weirdly, like the same group chat is like all about veneers all the time. And so this <laughs> it gets a shout out to uh, Christopher King, who is obsessed with Ben Affleck's veneers. So this is what happened. All of his teeth were replaced. Michael Bay. So they shaved him they down. Shaved him down. Yeah. My- shaved him down. Gave him new ones. That really freaks me out. Me too. By the way, just Michael yeah. Bay noticed early in the production that Affleck's teeth seemed like baby teeth in the footage that they shot. He had like fence post teeth at the time. You can see this in Goodwill Hunting. And he notes that Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of the movie, had previously replaced the teeth of quote a very famous star in an airplane movie. Uh, Harrison no. Ford in Air Force One. Tom Cruise. Oh, that, oh, that plane oh, movie was oh. Top Gun. Different airplane movie. So Affleck spent eight hours a day in a dentist chair for a week to get the teeth that you see in the film now. And they cost roughly $20,000 of the movie's budget. Oh, my God. Some <laughs> some spend on songs. Others spend on, on ben teeth. teeth. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that the space shuttle docks, the space shuttles dock with the Russian space station Mir. Remember Mir? And they they subsequently (laughs) blow it up and they have to take the Russian cosmonaut Lev Andropov, played by Swedish actor and my pee buddy, Peter Stormare. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) So I used to work at LA Center Studios, which is a studio lot. And uh, Peter Stormare was there filming a TV show called Swedish Dicks. And we were on the same pee schedule. We would see each other (laughs) in the bathroom at the urinal like twice a day for like a month. And we just started to to have a chat. So you you acknowledged that you were on the same pee schedule. 100% yes. So good. Late in the movie, Stormare delivers my father's favorite line in any movie ever. I know my mom is a listener, but hopefully she can put this in front of my dad. There's a scene where the space shuttle is malfunctioning and he goes to fix it. And someone says, you don't have the right components. And he says, American components, Russian components, all made in Taiwan. And that's my dad's favorite line in any movie. That is actually a really good line. Wait, speaking of our parents, um, my mom is also a listener, and she wanted me to tell you that my pronunciation of Tenenbaum is the correct one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> M- moms and pronunciations, man. Um, yeah. So, yeah. F- double fun fact, I talked to Peter Storm. I told Peter Stormare at a urinal about this, about my dad's favorite mid was it midstream no i think i wait i had the tact enough to (laughs) okay i i don't know the politics of bathrooms that aren't like i think we're washing women's rooms at this point but he told me that he had ad-libbed the line and originally the line was american components russian components all made in china and disney who touchstone pictures who produced the movie made them change it to taiwan because they had you know as as is now they didn't want to like disrupt the chinese movie market which is the second biggest movie market in the world the more more you know know. wow (laughs) so if any of this sounds dumb to you you're not the only one 
Ben Affleck on the DVD commentary for Armageddon recalls asking the director, Michael Bay, why it would not be easier to train astronauts how to drill than to train drillers how to go to space. And Bay allegedly told Affleck to shut, shut, shut the fuck up. I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers. And he told me to shut, shut, shut the fuck up. So that, that was the end of that talk. He was like, you know, Ben, just shut up, okay? You know, this is a real plan, all right? I was like, you mean it's a real plan at NASA to train oil drillers? He was like, just shut your mouth. <laughs> See, here's where we demonstrate that, because Bruce is going to tell the guys that they did a bad job of building the drill tank. He did a piss. See, he's a salt-of-the-earth guy. And the NASA nerdonauts. Don't uh, don't understand uh, his salt of the earth ways, his rough and tumble ways. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's because your cans are all like somehow they can build rocket ships, but they don't understand like what makes a good tranny. <laughs> we've, actually, uh, we've had them training for eight months solid now. Eight whole months? Well, pretty much, yeah. Like eight whole months, as if that's not enough time to learn how to drill a hole. But in a week, we're going to learn how to be astronauts. A oh, one whole week. Now you know how to fly into space? I need my guys. Why do you need them? They're the best. Everyone's the best. Why are they the best? I don't know. They just are. I'm only the best because I work with the best. If you don't trust the men you're working with, you're as good as dead. If you want to send these boys into space, fine. I'm sure they'll make good astronauts. But they don't know jack about drilling. I mean, this is a little bit of a logic stretch, let's face it. They don't know jack about drilling. How hard can it be? Aim the drill at the ground and turn it on. You think it's just drilling a hole? There's a lot you gotta know about. And when you're gonna break, snap off an edge in a tranny on a corner of a hot pipe, and you're gonna get a gas pocket. Like, yeah, well, what about when the booster rockets don't fire and your EVA suit and your zero gravity, you know? Didn't you see it? Didn't you see Apollo 13, boy? Okay, so so we are to believe that being the best driller is more difficult. And I, is more difficult than being the best astronaut. Correct. And okay, um, one involves expertise below the surface. One involves expertise above. There's the surface. There's no such thing Who's as unskilled labor. Like I'm, I, but yeah. But I also think that like. I don't, I don't know, man. Especially because, like, those engines aren't going to work in zero gravity. What's wrong with you people? But but isn't there a little bit of gravity on, on the, the on the on, thing itself on the asteroid? Yes. Yeah. And, and if he kicks bear in the if she kicks bear in the nuts, he'll float away. <laughs> yeah. Affleck is not the only one who thinks this movie's dumb. Allegedly, the NASA management training program new managers are given the task of trying to spot as many errors as possible in this movie and the record is 168 oh my god it's a lot wow 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 wow. okay but i kind of love this movie i saw it in the theater when i was a kid it's big and dumb and loud and fun and silly and it isn't realistic but it doesn't really try to be i feel the same way it's it's entertaining it's it's going to get a watch probably in the same span of time, like like every Independence Day, I didn't, I did not this year, but every Independence Day, I do enjoy rewatching Independence Day. Yeah, it's one of Leanne's yeah. top five movies of all time. If you can believe <laughs> that's it. amazing, and this, I would say that Independence Day is a better movie. Mm. I, I, I think I, I feel like they're kind of on par. It's less, ironically, like Independence Day is less stressful for me. 
<laughs> to watch. I I just feel like everyone in Armageddon is like sweaty the whole, the whole movie, the every scene. It doesn't matter where they are. Like they could be in a NASA boardroom on an oil rig or up in space. They are sweating. And it is a sweat. And movie. thus, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie is super effective emotionally too as the nuclear bomb counts down on the asteroid forcing harry s stamper to sacrifice himself to save aj demanding that aj take care of his little girl now that works for me even 25 years later yeah i guess it's it's a little like uh i can't be it's a little a little like daddy versus daddy i don't know daddy energy daddy versus daddy (laughs) sure no notes a lot of daddy ownership energy I I agree with that, and I think that that I'm willing to give a little bit of credit to the movie that like that's a character choice and not just like the what the movie thinks about women, but uh, but maybe a, giving it a little bit too much credit. Yeah, I I that's that's all I'm gonna say. How do you feel about the faux home movies of AJ and Grace's wedding? Yeah. Emotionally, does that work for you? I don't know. It was like kind of oh. it. I don't. It really didn't do anything for me. Like, it was, actually, I didn't even remember seeing it until. Like, I think it's like over the credits. Yeah, yeah. because I, but, I definitely didn't see him until until this last watch, and I was just like, "That looks like a nice wedding," and that, and I was like, "Good." So they got married. Like, this is fun. Thanks for tying that off for us, Michael Bay. So that was a late addition. Originally, the movie ended on the tarmac, and someone was like, "Oh, we need to know that Grace got married." But the home movies were directed by Ben Affleck and shot on his own super eight millimeter camera and it is on top of the only real performance of i don't want to miss a thing in the movie i think it's a testament to the power of filmmaking okay there's a moment in jurassic park which is objectively yes. a far better movie, better than independence the, day and armageddon put together correct it's a moment where the raptors break into like the computer room and the computer screen like projects a dna sequence on a raptor's face and someone i think the production designer like took their concerns to steven spielberg and was like steven you know a computer screen wouldn't do that it doesn't make any sense and spielberg's reply was it's pure cinema right it's just like this is just it doesn't have to be real. It has to be cinema. And this is the same reason that we send oil drillers up instead of training astronauts to drill. It's it's the willing suspension of disbelief. Yes. We're going to talk a little bit about the pros and cons of the willing suspension of disbelief. Okay. I feel like we were having the opposite of this conversation in our bear episode when we were talking about the need for everything to be hyper. The need for hi- realism. Yeah, the need yeah. for realism in TV. So I think that the willing suspension of disbelief was much more powerful before 9-11 right 9-11 made things very real to us and and in like silly little ways like in armageddon there is a president that's not bill clinton right that addresses the nation and i think with the advent of the internet and 24-hour news cycle and technology and all this other stuff and post 9-11 like you can't get away with like a fake president like that as much anymore. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. That makes sense. Speaking of suspending your disbelief, and I'm thinking yeah. thinking of the speech the president gives. This is like also such a blatantly pro America. America. Oh yeah. America equals the rest of the world movie. Certainly and is. And you you might have this in your notes, and I haven't even seen them yet. But one of my biggest oopsies in this movie is just that like every country 
is appearing to be on the same time zone. Yeah, that irks me. I think it's not it's nighttime the, um, in any of these. <laughs> the f- I think it's the fireworks problem. So when I was in college or grad school, I took a sound design class, and the professor, whose name is Chris Anderson, shout out to Chris Anderson, was talking about how he was working doing sound, post sound for a movie, and there was a scene involving fireworks, and he like did the math and timed it out because when you see fireworks you the the light travels faster than the sound and so he like you know did the calculations and timed the sound to happen with the proper ratio after we see the fireworks on screen and he showed it to the producers and the producers say the fireworks are wrong <laughs> yeah and he's like no no these are right this is how it would work and they say no but you look at it and they're wrong okay yeah so I think the time zone thing is the same issue where we know it's 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. And therefore, if an asteroid hits the Eiffel Tower, it also needs to be 10 a.m. there or else it just looks wrong. Well, I mean, of course it would look wrong. That's why you have to suspend The assumption your is that people are stupid. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But because of the patriotic nature of the script and the success of using Top Gun as recruitment material for the Navy, the producers persuaded NASA to allow Michael Bay and company to shoot in NASA. So this included the neutral buoyancy lab, which was that like big pool that they do the test test things in. They used two $10 million spacesuits. They shot on the launch pad where the Apollo one got on fire. They walked like at a real shuttle. Yeah. pretty interesting that they they really embrace this america as the rest of the world thing yes the script was the script is an amalgamation of the work of nine writers <laughs> you know what that really that really tracks yeah oh, super duper so we have shane salerno who also wrote avatar the way of water jonathan hensley who wrote the saint starring val kilmer and jumanji welcome to the jungle tony gilroy who wrote Rogue One and Nightcrawler, uh, Robert Ray Poole, who wrote Outbreak, Scott Rosenberg, who wrote Con Air, one of my all-time favorite movies, Robert Town again. We had Robert Town in our Mission Impossible episode, but he wrote the first Mission Impossible movie and Chinatown. Paul Atanasio, who wrote Quiz Show, Sphere, and Donnie Brasco. Anne Bitterman, who wrote Primal Fear and Copycat. And the last writer of the nine was a guy who did uncredited work named Josh Abrams. Yes. Who we now know as JJ. Can you believe that he did uncredited work on this movie probably right around the time that he was conceptualizing Felicity? That, yes, and that is what you call range, he, by the way. <laughs> he actually didn't do uncredited work because Michael Bay liked his writing so much that they brought him back to do more work and they gave him credit. Yes. An unnamed 10th screenwriter, this is according to Michael Bay, apparently begged Michael Bay for the opportunity to rewrite Armageddon. Bay does not mention the writer's name, but he says he was a young writer who rewrote 53 pages of the script. And Bay explains that he read what the screenwriter had written and it was pure shit. But he did say he read the new opening to the film and it didn't grab him like he felt it should. And the screenwriter came back a few days later with the opening of the film that is what is the opening of the film. Oh, so like the re- spaceship reciting the, the dinosaur stuff. And- no, no, right yeah, after okay. that. Fucking Charlton Heston yeah. reciting about the dinosaur. I, I just want to say that this movie, I haven't really thought about this until now, but this movie with all the screenwriters involved, it's really giving the same kind of 
like when you call an album overproduced, like when you have a really yeah. famous pop performer, pop singer, or whatever, um, and they're p- working on their new album, they have like a giant team of songwriters, engineers, and produce. They have like one producer hey, per song. Didn't Diane Warren give Beyonce shit for that? Diane Warren, the writer of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing? Ooh. Like recently. Yeah. Yeah. There there was there was something about that. And I really don't want to like misrepresent it. Yeah, wait, Naya. Okay, okay. Diane Warren made an enemy out of Beyonce's legions of fans after questioning why one of the singer's new songs off of Renaissance had over 20 credited writers. Practice what you preach, Diane. How can there be 24 writers on a song? This isn't meant a shade. I'm just curious. The Bayhive was not, uh, I guess it's the Beehive, right? It's the like, Beehive was not. Uh, I, I, uh, not I thought it was the Bayhive, but I, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's spelled Bayhive as opposed to Beehive. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. Beyonce, yeah. Beehive, Oh, well, right? I, yeah, I don't, I should know. I don't know. I've, I've only really Whatever. read it. I haven't Tenenbaum. really said it. Uh, no, I mean, look, we, I think I think my mom has to claim a, a win on this one since we it's on her side of the family that the Tenenbaums okay. were. That's her family tree. Anyway, Warren was like, I didn't mean this as an attack or disrespect. Call, call off your minions, yeah, Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met Diane Warren at an event I covered last year for InStyle, and it was filled with celebrities. Of oh, the, the podcast is called InSync. <laughs> uh, it was mostly like movie and TV actors, and Diane, and I don't think they were, I think Diane might have been the only real, like, I mean, if, unless like unless you count there. Kiki Palmer, which I would, I suppose. I, I think of Kiki Palmer more as an actor, only because I did not have the Disney Channel, and I know that she, like, sang. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't know until. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but, uh, but, yeah, I... I wasn't like technically there to interview Diane. Like she wasn't like on the she she wasn't <laughs> you were just like, on the list of asks from the editor uh, who who sure. wanted like the like Mindy Kalings and like the, the Lake Bells and you know, the, so on and so forth. But I did approach Diane like just because I was like, "Hey, you're really talented. You're really great. You've, you've <laughs> you're written really great. Songs of my childhood." And she was like, "Thanks. I just I come every year, and I just don't know what I'm doing here." And that was hell and yeah, I, dude. I was like, "Love a kooky." Yeah, I was lady. like, "Cool." And I remember she had blue eyeliner, and she was just having a good time. And I was I was here for it. Still, I'm here Look for it. your life, Diane Warren. Yeah. Stop slagging off Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> the original script did not include the romantic subplot between AJ and Grace, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler. And instead, there was more emphasis on the Truman-Stamper relationship, Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis. But after the success of Titanic uh... in 1997 with teenage girls, the romantic scenes were added. And AJ, Ben Affleck's character, who was a glorified roughneck, just like Owen Wilson, couple of good one-liners, was given basically the second lead of the movie. And hence the teeth. Oh, my God. Do you know if he got them worked on to make them look less insane? I mean, he must have. I think I think they've he settled must have. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they settled in. <laughs> Uh, most of the romantic scenes were written by Scott Rosenberg, who is a BU alum who I've spoken with a cool. couple of times. Cool, cool, And they were filmed very late in production. In an interview with 60 Minutes to promote Star Wars The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams recalls that when he was writing the film, producer Jerry Bruckheimer encouraged him not to worry about scientific accuracy and just focus on telling an exciting story. That really would not work today. 
just it wouldn't and a lot of writers it like there's like a ton of like writer advice that i see floating around online and one of them is like don't ever let the logic police stop the fun train okay right like rule number one is be entertaining and like the logic police will do what it does but the internet is like a, a vile wretched place yes, and so you, said it. you can't get away with anything i would say like yes fun first and like with a, with a supporting buttressed by logic I agree. I'm I have like too much anxiety to not research things as evidenced by this show. Yeah. <laughs> Likewise. So I want to know about Aerosmith and I don't want to miss it. All right. Well, before we get into it, let's listen to a little bit of I don't want to miss a thing right now. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. Watch you smile while you are sleeping. While far away dreaming I could spend my life In this sweet surrender I could stay lost in this moment Forever Every moment spent with you Is a moment I treasure I don't want to miss a thing technically plays twice in Armageddon. You hear a snippet of it during the famous animal cracker scene Hell yeah. where Ben Affleck is using his best. What? Who is he trying to? He's, the St- he's doing Steve Irwin. He's doing his best Steve Irwin impression and pretending that Liv Tyler's body. The majestic lion. Is like a landscape. It's like basically just an excuse to see Liv Tyler with an unbuttoned dress and her like bra and underwear. And she was 20 when this movie was made, by the way. They are in like one last embrace before Ben Affleck goes off to save the world. They're having a picnic in like the hull of a. It, I think that this is where Apollo won, right? There is that scene, but that's not the scene I'm talking about. Oh. Bruce Willis approaches he he happens upon them they don't see him but he happens upon them in like the hull yeah in, in like sitting in one of the engines or something yeah <laughs> and what the fuck where the, you can't just go to that no it's really that it, if, of all the unrealistic things about this movie to me that is the most unrealistic it's so staged that <laughs> yeah anyway so you're not a fan even more staged than because they've taken off for the day and now they're in a field right and this is the other scene where Aerosmith plays so there's a wide open field and like a top down convertible that they've used to get there and they're just having like a like an open field picnic and a love song sung by Liv Tyler's father sounds over 
And which is not the first time that Liv Tyler visuals paired to the nature of a song her father is singing has so, happened. Also not the first time she hung out of a convertible while doing it. <laughs> so you hear a snippet of I don't want to miss a thing there. And then you hear the song again as the credits roll. Let me say up front that I really hate the scene if I haven't already made that clear. Both the <laughs> in the hull, like like canoodling in the hull of an engine whatever scene where's your where's your sense of romance oh it's there it's just that they don't look like it's like watching bollywood you know how in bollywood they never actually like kiss they just just hug they just kind of pretend and it's very high budget in some cases it's so high budget that it's like very like slick well counterpoint okay romance What what if we kissed in the burned out hull of Apollo One where a bunch of people died? (laughs) I'm I didn't think about that, but I I'm just not feeling the chemistry between Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck. Really, I'm I'm not really feeling it. I mean, they look good together, like they do look good, like as attractive people. But the whole like I don't know. It feels so contrived. It is it is tacked on, right? They like admit that that they did not yeah, plan on this like to like happen. I literally believe now. I didn't know the context, and now knowing the context, it makes so much more sense. There is a uh, a rumor that longtime Ben Affleck friend and collaborator Kevin Smith wrote this scene, and it definitely feels different than the rest because he's like doing a bit. He's got like the animal cracker. He's like, "Do I go up to your boobs, which are mountains?" Or down to the fertile valley below. And then he like tucks an animal cookie into her her underwear. underwear, Hot. Which is like. Kinky. Unsanitary. Kinky. (laughs) See, there's your sense of romance. What? That that isn't something that like you've ever done? You've ever, you've never like gotten. Yeah, we call call it the snack machine. (laughs) The vending machine. The vending machine. It's getting into like nine and a half weeks territory. Which is, which is also extremely realistic. I <laughs> but I like buy their chemistry, like Kim Basinger's chemistry with Mickey. Oh, they fucking hated each other. Oh, well, they sell it better, I guess. Anyway, off topic. So I Don't Want to Miss a Thing in the U.S. was originally supposed to only be a radio single from Armageddon. But due to popular demand, Columbia Records issued the song commercially in August of 98. And it debuted at number one on the Hot 100, giving Aerosmith their first and only number one single in the U.S. Isn't that crazy? Originally, I guess it just wasn't supposed to be like a sing- a, sing- a single you could buy. And and yeah, then it, it was so successful, I think it got it probably got so much airplay that Columbia were like, well, obviously we have to sell it. So here you go. I don't want to miss a thing being written specifically for the movie is not on any Aerosmith albums exactly. Uh, it's Except for like the best. Yeah, except for like the best stuff. Yeah. There is a single... Well, there is a song that's also on the Armageddon soundtrack that was like a leftover, like a holdover from a a recording session that didn't make an album. For Aerosmith? Yeah, for Aerosmith. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Because when you watch Armageddon, it feels like three-fourths of all of the song selections are from Aerosmith. You've got Sweet Emotion. You've got a cover of Come Together. You've got... I don't want to miss a thing a couple times. What else do we ha- have? There's a there's another one. Yeah. What kind of love are you on? That's the one. Oh yeah. Gross. Th- it, it, that one's forgettable. And the stripped down 
on the soundtrack, the stripped down version of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing that plays uh, in the love scene is just called Animal Crackers, <laughs> which is gross. <laughs> Fucking gross. This song represents the, the Animal Crackers <laughs> the animal in my daughter's, in my daughter's underwear. Vagina. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's kind of major that Aerosmith had this huge bump of success, and I'm not making a cocaine pun, like in 1998, because Aerosmith had already been a band for three whole decades prior. And it's arguable that Aerosmith's comeback, this whole I don't want to miss a thing, Armageddon thing, is part of like a long-running comeback for Aerosmith ever since their collab with Run DMC. In the late 80s. Which was their second comeback. Yeah, yeah. So Or their first comeback. So, to give a little history, Aerosmith started in 1970 when Steven Tyler met Joe Perry. They were playing in different bands, but they were at a New Hampshire show. Tyler, he's from Yonkers. Perry is from, I believe, he's from Boston, no? Yeah, he's from like Alston. Yeah. yeah. And... Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, they decide to kind of merge their bands, and Aerosmith is born. Everyone moves to Boston, they get management, they start playing club gigs. And um, what's kind of funny is that they got their big break in New York, not in Boston. (laughs) They paid someone to get booked at Max's Kansas City in New York, where... Clive Davis, oh, so record label bigwig, Clive Davis yeah. happened to be. And so this is already a problem because this is like the the advice that boomers give to like younger people is like sometimes you gotta pay to play. Sometimes the guy from the record industry will be at your show. Like this is the one in a billion time that it happened that <laughs> makes like baby boomers so annoying oh when God. they give you advice about work. It's a hundred percent old economy, Steve story old economy steve i love old economy steve <laughs> have you just called them yeah. to see if they're hiring? have you just walked in with your resume this is like this is the, like the one in a trillion example of like that working also as far as i know it i mean a and r reps go to shows of course but the whole like record label foundation has been so like obliterated to hell and the what like 40 years since this happened no that like 50 years since this 50 years since this yeah. happened that don't don't do what aerosmith did this isn't this doesn't this happen doesn't anymore. happen anymore making it big is like robbing a bank i can't tell you how to do it i can just tell you how aerosmith did it <laughs> yeah this this is also you could also say this is some like white guy failing up situation fuck yeah I, i'm so glad that we we're aligned on aerosmith hate oh you didn't know that i don't like aerosmith no i like one fuck, fuck i up, like man. one aerosmith song one song this is dream on yes it is their yeah their very first single which had to be and it's the only one that doesn't sound like shit. yeah it had to be re-released after the band got famous because it really didn't move the needle at first and their first two albums really didn't move the needle but their third album, 1975's Toys in the Attic, which had Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion, which I kind of like. I kind of like Sweet Emotion. Sweet Emotion's I okay. Like. That one did really well. Toys in the Attic was kind of like their breakthrough. And then they, and so Columbia in the mid-70s reissued Draymond, and that became their first top 10 hit going to number six. Jesus. 
I feel like I haven't really said why I don't like Aerosmith. You don't need to say. They just suck. I want to make my case. Okay. In the 90s, they were just kind of there. And so I felt like I had to like them by default. And I did read in my research here that the whole reason why they did get signed is that I think Columbia saw Aerosmith as like the U.S.'s Rolling Stones. Yeah. Which I could kind of see because they they definitely are like American, like bro brash. Mm hmm. And they're in very the way that like sick. Rolling Stones are like, che- like British cheeky. Yeah, I I think that they did not represent the the same kind of danger that like someone like a Motley Crue, oh. which I know is a bit later. Yeah, Motley Crue like were inspired by Aerosmith. Is the irony? Yeah, right. Yeah, I feel like a lot more like badass bands. It depends on how you define badass. Like, I think uh, Aerosmith were more easily sold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But uh, behind the scenes, there was lots of drugs, lots of drugs, lots of drugs and lots of underage stuff. I think actually Steven Tyler has been sued recently by someone who was underage and like basically like Steven Tyler allegedly convinced this young woman's mom to let her live with him just like to loan her out this is all all too common unfortunately with like rock stars of the 70s ted nugent like adopted a girl so he could marry her yeah yeah, yeah. like really fucked up shit so allegedly it was like in that vein but in public nobody knew that yeah so they were just radio friendly nice guys with long hair and uh, there are they're just like silly. They're like a joke band. Like I I like bands in general, like artists who don't take themselves too seriously, but like like collectively to me Aerosmith is they look like I know Steven Tyler kind of resembles like a puppet, but they Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they to me seem like 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 an animated idea of what a like hard rock band is as opposed to actually being a rock band. They're like a car they're like a cartoon of a band. That tracks. And I and I I think that they have never had anything to say. No. Um also I remember hating the song Pink in the nineties. Oof. Bad song. I really hate that song. Even as a kid, I was like, I know what this is about. And <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what it was about. And I'm like, this song sucks. And 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 it was specifically, I remember the couplet of lines that made me decide I don't like Aerosmith. It was, I want to be your lover. I want to wrap you in rubber. Blech. And I was just like, at the, and I didn't know he was like talking about condoms or whatever. Yeah, that doesn't that also doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't, well, it's just stupid. Like, you're a bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> All, All you right. know how to do is like scream scat. <laughs> anyway, anyway, okay, I digress. I digress. The the hate will return. Yeah. Don't but, worry. But um, I do really like Dream On. I legit think that's a a good song because they they appear to be I taking something or someone seriously. I think I have burnt myself out on that song because I really really liked it. Yeah. And I think I've just listened to it. Too. You don't need to listen to it anymore. You you can that I yeah, think I'm free. that <laughs> that quota can be is like filled in your like teen years. Right, like you're like wow, and then you never need to listen to it again. Aerosmith's third album—that's what I was talking about. And so after Toys and the Atticus, three more albums follow. Rocks, Draw the Line, 
and Night in the Ruts. Cool. And at this point in 79, uh, Joe Perry abruptly left after a backstage fight with Steven Tyler. They, yeah, famously hate yeah. each other. And Brad Whitford, guitarist Brad Whitford, he left soon after that. Joe Perry. <laughs> Not the actor from, <laughs> yeah, uh, less TV. from the West Wing. I actually had to get. I've had to get yeah. Taylor to uh, clarify that, that for it, me. That <laughs> yeah, Whitford, when yeah. he's talked about, like, just for work reasons. And I've been like, wait, hold, hang on. Not like... Selling a guitar to Bradley yeah, no. <laughs> Whitford? Anyway, Joe Perry launches the Joe Perry Project. Aerosmith kept going without him. But neither one really saw the level of success. So Perry and Tyler, they need each other, Right. But apparently they hate each other, but they need each other. They, yeah, they're locked in this dance forever. They are each other's meal ticket. So they basically, like what I'm assuming, they do what Morrissey and Marr could never, could not, not that they should. And they get back together eventually. <laughs> their love of money yeah. trumped their petty differences. <laughs> in 84, Perry does rejoin Aerosmith, but they don't see another hit until they collabed with Run DMC for the rap rock treasure Walk This Way. I think I think the song is fun. I think the song is fun, but we are 14 years away before I don't want to miss a thing and they're already like recycling old material. That's true. This was apparently Rick Rubin's idea because Rick Rubin was working with Run DMC and he heard Run and DMC freestyling over the opening drums and Walk This Way. Aerosmith were desperate for another hit because it had been a few years. Like, yeah. like Joe Perry might have rejoined in 84, but the song doesn't actually come out until 86. Oh, sure. So th- there are a couple years there where there's still like not a whole lot going on. And they're like, as far as the music industry is concerned, the popular industry concern is they're like yesterday's cake. So the unfortunate side effect of the the collaboration between Run DMC and Aerosmith is that actually like Aerosmith saw a lot more success out of it in the long run because it really like kicked them off and gave them like in terms of numbers far better numbers and it's a it's a new generation that's listening to them it's a new demographic Mm. that's listening to them yeah so the reimagine walk this way huge success peaked at number four it became the first rap single to ever reach the top 10 on the hot 100 this was the launching pad for Aerosmith to really smash their way back and so everyone goes to rehab, they get new management, <laughs> and then they release 87's Permanent Vacation, which has Ragdoll, Dude Looks Like a Lady, which I remember best from Mrs. Doubtfire. And which is about Motley Crue's Vince Neil. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, like Steven Tyler was checking him out at a bar, like checking out his ass at a bar, and he turned around and it was Vince Neil, and Steven Tyler's like, get, someone get me a pen. <laughs> that dude looks like a lady. <laughs> This might be a good time to drop an anecdote that there have been many times. You know how Taylor has long hair? Mm-hmm. Oh, long, yeah. Luscious Taylor hair. gets checked out all the time, I bet. Uh, he has. He has a really good story that I shouldn't be the one to tell, but he like was riding his bike and some guys in a truck saw him and they were like, you know, catcalling. Hey, baby. Catcalling him. And then when they, re- yeah. when they realized that he was not, in fact, a woman, one of them like bursts out laughing and the other one is like, you look like a chick. And that was it. Yeah. And on on dates, like if the waiter doesn't see him, ma'am. Yeah, no, we we get a lot of ma'ams. We've been 
like cat called. People think from far away that we are two women and that's cool. <laughs> so anyhow, Angel is oh also God, on permanent vacation. And I think that is one of the schlockiest songs I've ever heard. Too. It's like that became Aerosmith's biggest hit yet at number three. It went to number three on the Hot 100. And this also, this taught them the wrong fucking lesson because then they just kept releasing Angel under a different yes. name like four more times. On uh, 1993's Get a Grip, that album had Crying, Amazing. Which is just Angel. Yeah, Amazing. Angel again. And Crazy. <laughs> Angel, a, third, a fourth time. And so it seems like Aerosmith is realizing that the real money <laughs> is in schlocky power ballads. Also, crazy marks the beginning mm-hmm. of Liv Tyler's public connection to Steven Tyler. I mean, Liv had known that Steven was her father when she was like 11. Like 12. Yeah. She like saw him. She saw like, him. That's my dad. Yeah. I want to meet that dad. She asked her mother, B.B. Buell, about it, and Buell apparently told her the truth, but the the truth about Liv's paternity did not go public until 91, and until then, she'd been raised under the impression that Todd Rundgren was her father, because- Another guy he, I'm, like, not super hot on. He's fine. I'm neutral. I have no, yeah. I have no real feelings for, or- like, Neutral I, Rundgren <laughs> Hotel. <laughs> I, I do know that I confuse him a lot with a uh, super conservative. Oh, oh, um, Cat's Scar- Ted Nugent. Yeah, I, I just I confuse those those names all the time. I'm always there's having, like a D D's and G's in yeah, there. Yeah, I'm always I'm always having to remind myself. Okay, well, which which one is is the Newsmax nut job and, and horrible and which is horrible the, human? Which is the non horrible human? The, which, yeah, the dad but, who stepped up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Liv was raised thinking that Todd was. Her father. In the early 90s, Liv did change her last name from Rungren to Tyler. So the truth about Liv's paternity went public in 91. And then she's basically jailbait in 1993. So it's not like Stephen didn't know. Well, he claims that in the video for Crazy, where Liv and a pre-clueless Alicia Silverstone are running around like sexy naked in the pool. They're doing like a variation of Thelma and Louise sort of thing. Yeah, or like Wild Things, that movie. Yeah, sure. Steven claims that he had no idea about the casting and that that the video's creators just saw Liv Tyler in a Pantene commercial. So it was allegedly a coincidence. What are the odds? And she told Rolling Stone that year, I understand why people might have a problem with the video's content, but I have no problem with it. And Steven has no problem with it. And if other people have a problem with it, that's their problem. Okay. So Liv appeared in That Thing You Do in 96. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Previous in-sync subject. And producer Jerry Bruckheimer cast her right after that. So Liv had already been in That Thing You Do and also Empire Records. So Jerry and music supervisor Kathy Nelson also, this is at the point where they bring in Diane Warren to compose I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Because the previous year, Warren had written How Do I Live for the Bruckheimer-produced Con Air. One of my all-time favorite movies. Which should be the subject of a future podcast due to its incredibly messy history. So... Legend has it that Warren wrote, I don't want to miss a thing after reading something that 
actor James Brolin had said about his wife, Barbara Streisand. The version that I heard was that he watched the, the, an interview of them on like 2020 or something. But yeah, same, same. Okay. And Brolin had said that he didn't like going to sleep because he missed Barbara when he was sleeping, which see that that's romance. Okay, sure. <laughs> but when I once saw Vince Neil's butt and that dude looks like a lady. <laughs> we all get inspired we, from different I was going to say, we, we draw inspiration for all kinds of places. <laughs> In Fred Bronson's Billboard book of number one hits, Warren says, when I demoed the song, it was very soft and more keyboard based. I thought, this is a good song for Celine Dion. But Aerosmith's A&R guy apparently played the demo for producer Matt Serletic, who'd gotten his start producing for Collective Soul and Matchbox 20. When Serletic said that he liked the song, the A&R guy told him that he had to record it with Aerosmith like immediately. And Celine was also coming off of Titanic at this time. And not that she like didn't want an- another massive super hit on her hands, but I'm assuming she was far more expensive to secure than maybe Aerosmith, who is a little past their prime. I think that's reasonable, although they're probably, I mean, they're probably all around the same age. It's just how do you define past your prime? I mean, past their prime yeah. in terms of market value, right? Like, I yeah, bet yeah, they yeah, got yeah, all yeah. of Aerosmith for half of yeah. what Celine would have cost them. Yeah. So drummer Joey Kramer told Classic Rock Magazine in 2017 of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. When I first heard it, it was just a demo with piano and singing. It was difficult to imagine what kind of touch Aerosmith could put on it and make our own. And as soon as we begin playing it as a band, then it instantly became an Aerosmith song, which like, honestly, that is the most bland. Like I've heard some version of that about like, put any song here. Yeah, in, in, in a any, press any release, band. right? Exactly. Any band, yeah. Like that is the most like bland description of one of your biggest songs that I've ever heard. It also like doesn't really like there is no signature Aerosmith sound except for Steven's voice, right? Like if yeah. if we replace this with U two, I would like believe it because like oh man, the Edge has like such a unique guitar sound that I personally hate, but I like get it. I understand that that is their sound. Aerosmith is just like, yeah, we we have drums and a guitar. <laughs> yeah, now I'm thinking about what U2 would have, because they, they became like a ballad. They are kind of a ballad band. They're a ballad band, band now, yeah. Yeah, and, they, and they, I feel like they were most leaning into their balladry in the early 2000s, like a few years later. I feel I similarly know. about U2 as I do about Aerosmith, so I we can let the hate flow through us. <laughs> I like you two ostensibly more than I like Eric. Like, I think I take you two a little bit more seriously. Well, they are definitely singing about stuff. They are singing about also Sunday Bloody Sunday. Only good song. But also, also hold me, thrill me, kiss me. Oh, from the fucking Batman Forever soundtrack next week on on In Sync, baby. No, but hold me, thrill me, kiss me, fucking slaps. That is a good song. I will, song I will, slaps. I will see that that song is very good. And it's the only good riff that they have. They don't have like good riffs in that. Yeah, band. they're not. They're not like a super riffy band. All right. Well, we got a lot of episode ideas from yeah. this show. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the Armageddon soundtrack, which went quadruple platinum, <sighs> the soundtrack spent two weeks at number one, and I don't want to miss a thing. Got an Oscar nomination for best original song, but didn't win. 
It lost to When You Believe by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston for The Prince of Egypt. That song rips. That song is so good. That is. And watching them perform, I think I recently, for some reason, rewatched their performance of it at the Oscars and like got full body chills. Aren't they like competing with each other of like who can do the most runs? Is that what's happening in this? Oh, I don't know. Probably. They like are definitely having a diva off in the performance. (laughs) So following their late 90s success with I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and Armageddon Palooza, Aerosmith released their 13th album, 2001's Just Push Play, which Joe Perry said in a 2010 interview was his least favorite album of Aerosmith's, which is weird because like this is just showing how young I am in the greater like I don't get many chances to feel young anymore <laughs> like truly right. but reading all of Aerosmith's history does make me feel young because like this was in 2001 like we were that's in high school yeah. yeah I was in high school and like that but like young high school and that's when I was just beginning to conceive of Aerosmith as a band like beyond the 70s classic rock stations right. that my dad listened to in the car I remember a couple things from Just Push Play that I think that they did a cover of Baby Please Don't Go which is actually kind of okay Okay. and um, I remember I think it was Rolling Stone or it was like some one of the magazines I used to have a subscription to in 2001 because we used to get these paper magazines delivered to our house the album review of Just Push Play was Just Push Stop <laughs> That's amazing. I I can't imagine that. Like I I I saw that it got overall mixed reviews. Like it's not a beloved. No. Uh, and it wasn't then, and it certainly isn't now. With many years of perspective, but I do remember that Angel's Eye from Just Just Push Play was in Charlie's Angels, the reboot. And I do remember Jaded being isn't, on MTV a lot. Isn't Jaded just? Angel over again, isn't yes, it just like another yeah. power ballad? Oh yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, it's totally a power ballad. I Dude. mean, they they found their bread and butter in power okay. ballads. It was nominated for a, a Grammy, but like, kind of the way when Coldplay releases an album now, it it gets like a best rock album or album uh, album of the year nod. I feel that way about Meryl Streep. Anything she's in, she'll just get nominated for an Oscar, just because. Yeah, you know, she's Meryl yeah. Streep. Only her work is actually good. good. It's good, yeah. Withdrawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's also arguable that the success of Armageddon and I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and then kind of like snowballing into Just Push Play and the Grammy Award that it was not the one Grammy Award it was nominated for. This is so much visibility as you can probably imagine that. More than they've had in decades. Yeah, I am willing to bet that. All this visibility and success, ostensible success, resulted in Aerosmith playing the Super Bowl halftime show in 2001 with NSYNC, Britney Spears, Nelly, and Mary J. Blige. This is the year before the infamous thing that happened at the Super Bowl halftime show. Isn't it? I think it's three years before. Three years? Yeah. yeah it's, this, a co- it's a few yeah, years before. It's a few years before. I think it's remembered really really fondly because you get like like Aerosmith I guess you say whatever you want to say about them but they did get a lot of crossover success into the pop world like 
at a time when rock and pop were much more separated. Yes. That is like a thing that they are are good at or their team is good at is like their rock isn't rock enough. So like let's market it to other genre fans as well. Yes. It's a little bit like how country and pop have always had a friendly relationship and mm. more friendly in the last 20 or 25 years, right? So Aerosmith on stage with Britney Spears and Nelly and Mary J. Blige. And so, so you've got the rock, you've got the pop, you've got the rap with Nelly, who's a little country. He's, he's always been a little bit country. And Mary J. Blige, oh, yeah. soulful R&B. So that's a lot of grounds. That's a lot of buckets filled. It's also just like a mess. Like the Super Bowl halftime show, when they used to do these like super big mixes of artists, I guess they still yeah. kind of do, is like, it's all a fucking mess, man. This one did feel a little bit like I've eaten too much at the buffet and now mm-hmm. I feel a little bit sick. But <laughs> I remember thinking it was super fun at the time and it definitely was like Britney Spears at her at her peak. How dare you? Britney Spears has not not yet peaked. We have not seen the greatness that Britney Spears can Oh, I can pre-ordered do. her book oh, yeah. coming in October. I will read it and relish every page. Anyway. Covers. Covers. There are a few of them. In 1998, Mark Chestnut released a country version of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. It's already fucking country, but sure. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you just made me think of that country song that I used to like and now I hate. She thinks my tractor is sexy. (laughs) No. No, Amazed. Amazed. That's it. That's it. Amazed. Remember the song Amazed? Nope. You remember it. Okay, okay. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing is very, like, Lone Star singing Amazed. Like, baby, I'm amazed by you. Oh, sure, sure. Another, like, slow Wedding song. Wedding song. At the junior high school dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But technically, in 98, Mark Chestnut did do, like, an official country version of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. And his version topped the the Billboard country chart and crossed over to the Hot 100. Okay, man. And Newfound Glory pop punk coverers they released a pop punk cover of i don't want to miss a thing in the year 2000 for like pop punk goes to the movies or whatever yeah probably i don't actually remember i, I have I, not listened i think i have heard it it's fine newfound glory is fine in this list of covers i did include selma blair oh hum- yeah humming the melody to i don't want to miss a thing in order to get the dick out of her throat and in a 2021 stereo gum interview shout with stereo gum shout out stereo gum with Diane Warren, author Larry Fitzmaurice, shout out Larry Fitzmaurice, asked her about that scene. And like, God, there are so few like questions that I wish I had gotten to ask. But and this is one of them. This is one of them. So Diane Warren said that the Swedish thing director Roger Cumble, friend of the show, was, quote, scared to show her that scene for approval, but she loved it. She said, quote, shit, of course I think it's okay. I wish I was in the group singing along to it, which I love that. (laughs) What a kooky lady. Okay, so now it it would appear that we're in Act 3. We are in Act 3. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the darker side of Armageddon. Sick of being upsold at gyms? (laughs) 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. <laughs> At the time of its release, Armageddon was the third most expensive movie ever made. The budget was $140 million, which is a- about $275 million today. It was only behind Titanic and Waterworld. And it wound up being the Walt Disney Company's highest grossing live action film ever. Without adjusting for inflation, it made uh, $554 million, which at the time was astronomical. Adjusted for inflation, that would be over a billion dollars in today's money. Not to mention the VHS, DVD, soundtrack, secondary market, which we don't really see today. As Rachel mentioned, the soundtrack went like quadruple platinum or something obscene amount of money right many times platinum yeah many times platinum but roger ebert was not a fan he called this movie the worst movie of 1998 i'm shocked 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 i tell you shocked and uh, and also a 150 minute long trailer (laughs) that's great but how exactly did this movie get made and even weirder how did this movie come out just six weeks after another asteroid hurtling toward earth movie deep impact how how did it get made how did it get made so deep impact was directed by mimi leader who more recently directed and co-created the apple tv plus show the morning show and it was written by bruce joel rubin and michael tonkin writers of ghost and the player respectively so some some good heat behind those names deep impact is a more traditional disaster movie follows multiple storylines features a lot more death more women that have names and lines (laughs) in it all in an effort to be more realistic and the kind of conventional wisdom is that deep impact was just a little too serious for people and it was no match for the big dumb thrill ride like armageddon for what it's worth, Deep Impact wasn't a flop. I think these days it's kind of a punchline, like, oh, you're not going to be Armageddon, you're going to be Deep Impact. But <laughs> it made $350 million at the box office, which while it's you know 60% of what Armageddon made, it's still a huge hit. Yeah. The conventional wisdom also was that, whoops, two writers had the same idea probably around the same time in like 1996 when a newspaper article was written about the probability of an asteroid hitting Earth. This, by the way, is an article that's written every two years since forever. Well, it's got me thinking about friends with benefits. Yeah. And and just just, friends. uh, Not just friends. Friends with benefits and just go with it? No, No, no. No strings attached. Yes, no strings attached. Two movies that got made like in the same year. These are called movie twins. So this happens. Yeah. 
pretty often. No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits, which was originally called Fuck Buddies. But we also have Volcano and Dante's Peak. We have the, the Illusionist and the Prestige. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, we could we could spend a whole fucking day on, on Movie Twins. But there is another story. And this is from MoviePhone.com. And MoviePhone excerpts uh, the book Tales from the Script, which is like a nonfiction book about movies that get stuck in development hell. So I'm going to be movie phone for a minute. It happens every couple of years where two incredibly similar movies will come out around the same time, whether they're about magicians, terrorists targeting the White House, like White House down and Olympus has fallen, or destructively erupting volcanoes. But perhaps the most famous and still talked about tale of conceptual overlap came in the summer of 1998 when dueling films about death from above, one's a comet, the other's an asteroid, invaded cinemas worldwide deep impact versus armageddon according to a may 1998 issue of starlog magazine producers david brown and richard zanuck came up with the idea for deep impact sometime in the 70s when they were contemplating a way to update the 1951 film when worlds collide the producers took the concept to steven spielberg who had already bought the rights to a novel called hammer of the gods by arthur c clark arthur c clark also wrote 2001 a space odyssey and that kind of had similar subject matter an asteroid on a collision course with earth eventually all of these ideas merged with the (laughs) script written by bruce joel rubin a lot of merging happening here a a lot of merging and rewritten by michael tolkien The subsequent drafts of the screenplay took it away from When Worlds Collide and Hammer of the Gods enough that neither were credited. And this left Arthur C. Clarke really unhappy, particularly since DreamWorks, which is Spielberg's production company, had used his name in promotion of the project. So Spielberg did intend to direct the project, which was called Deep Impact, and he was going to inject some popcorn movie heft into his new studio, DreamWorks. But he was committed to Amistad, making the movie Amistad. And that prevented him from making the movie in the window that he had allotted. And everyone was in a super hurry because over at Disney, a suspiciously similar project was brewing. <laughs> Would you call this the space race? The second space Ooh, race? The next space race? I love that. That's the title of this of the section. Of the book. Of, yeah. <laughs> So Bruce Joel Rubin claimed that Disney had outright stolen the idea for the project. And this is from Tales from the Script. He said that while taking a meeting at Disney, he spoke about the Deep Impact script and he noticed that the executive he was meeting with was furiously taking notes. A witness who reported to Movie Phone that Michael Bay and a Confederate snuck into Paramount while Deep Impact was being edited and actually stole the dailies so that the Armageddon production team could see what the competition was up to. Spielberg eventually threatened a lawsuit against Touchstone Pictures, which is the Disney Corporation, but that never materialized. And the competition continued between Deep Impact and Armageddon even after they were released. So Deep Impact came out in May of 1998, And Disney Studio Chairman Joe Roth, after seeing Deep Impact, gave Armageddon an additional $3 million for more visual effects. (laughs) This is movie phone. It's unclear whether the initial idea for Armageddon came from this meeting 
at Disney with Bruce Joel Rubin, particularly since almost a dozen writers had their hands in the Armageddon screenplay. But what is clear is that it came after Deep Impact was already being worked on. So it's very clear that Bay, deeply insecure about his own film, did some unscrupulous things to make sure his film came out on top. I refuse to believe that Michael Bay could be insecure. (laughs) (laughs) He did this publicly, too. Michael Bay insulted Tia Leone, who is the star of Deep Impact, by comparing her star power against Bruce Willis's. But Michael Bay had worked with Tia Leone on Bad Boys. Like, they know each other. Leone's response was, that was so Michael. (laughs) And that it was not clear how firing guns would defeat an asteroid. Oh, they'll or, show you. They'll show you. They were firing guns. Like They were absolutely firing they, guns in space. They had to like, tape up Steve Buscemi's character because he's he like- has lo- space dementia. Lost, yeah, he's like lost his mind. Uh, it reminds me of that scene in Thank You for Smoking where Rob Lowe is like, oh, you just have to write one line into the script. Uh, thank God they invented that thing that lets us smoke in space. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually like a thing about the gun that William Fickner pulls on what's his name, Chick in Armageddon. And the Air Force was like, absolutely not. And it, someone would not do that. And they're like, well, what if this was the situation? And the Air Force is like, fine. Okay, so would you say that our belief has to be as suspended as the uh, receptacles sending these people into space? I, yes, absolutely. In fact, yeah. so <laughs> when Deep Impact. Open strongly at the box office in May of 1998, Paramount pointed out all the problems that Disney was having, and Bruce Willis accidentally revealed in an interview that they went and shot more scenes after Deep Impact opened. But this is not the first time that Disney has been accused of stealing another writer's work. In addition to completely rewriting American copyright laws to benefit themselves, the Disney company has been accused of plagiarism numerous times, including for The Lion King, which critics allege was plagiarized by the Japanese manga Kimba and the White Lion. These projects are so similar to each other that even Matthew Broderick, who played the voice of Simba in The Lion King, thought that they were doing a remake of Kimba and the White Lion, which he had watched when he was a kid. Yeah, there's there are comparisons online that you can see. It's pretty fucked. Atlantis The Lost Empire was accused of allegedly plagiarizing a Japanese animated series as well called Nadia, The Secret of the Blue Water, more specifically in its character designs and setting and storyline. Disney settled the plagiarism case involving Frozen and has been accused of stealing the idea for Zootopia from screenwriter Gary Goldman. They've also been accused of stealing fans' artwork for movie posters and even for tchotchkes that they sell in their parks. So you're telling me. (laughs) Yes, I am telling you. (laughs) That Disney is not on the side of the working man? No, and the fact that Disney has absorbed three other massive studios. Like, they are a mega studio because they are Disney, Pixar, Lucasfilm, which they bought in 2012, Marvel, which they bought in 2013 or 14, and Fox, which they just bought last year. So... All of these major, there's there's this massive consolidation that's happening in the movie industry, and it's only adding to Disney's market share, and uh, that's pretty fucking bad when they have a history of plagiarizing people's material. With the discussion of rights and intellectual property on everyone's mind, and with the writer strike in its 11th week, 
and they've now been joined by the Screen Actors Guild. I wanted to go back to the idea of the willing suspension of disbelief. The same thing that allows us to believe in the magic of movies, the computer screen that could project DNA code onto a raptor's face, or the team of oil drillers could save the world from a killer asteroid, can also lead us to believe dangerous untruths about our world. Wow, this might be the tidiest, most elegant Thank you. narrative bow I've ever seen you tie. I worked real hard on this one. It's beautiful. <laughs> you told me that you were going to do something with this. And um, for the record, I love it. This. Thank you. I love, And also the suspension. May I just may I attack on the suspension yes. of disbelief? Yes, you, our world, but specifically a creative person. Oh, yeah. Being told that, well... We believe you in should you. just do it. Yeah. For the because uh, you're supposed to love it. Yeah, I mean the the love and the exposure. That's really oh, the exposure just made me shiver. <laughs> yeah, it's also our it's willing triggering. suspension. You're right. It's also our willing suspension of disbelief that allows us to think that a company worth 160 billion dollars, which is down from close to 200 billion dollars just a couple of years ago, has artists' best interest at heart and wouldn't exploit them or the common people just because they're responsible for some of our favorite movies, for magical moments that we spend in the cinema or with our families or at their parks. People base their entire personalities on Marvel and Star Wars and Disney and Cinderella and Pixar. And for them to do that, they have to deep down believe that Disney likes them back. Ooh, it's like the most successful mob front ever. Yes, that's exactly right. Ever. And this yeah. goes for all the other studios to Warner, Paramount, Universal, Netflix. Yes, Netflix is a studio, not a streamer. All these companies, the sole goal is maximizing profits any way they can, even if it means stealing from people. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad about liking Disney or Marvel or going to theme parks or liking Armageddon. I like Armageddon. I like Armageddon, too. But it's I fun. think we're yeah. starting to realize now that we're in a constant state of being sold products for the enrichment of CEOs at the top who will, and this is a quote from one of them recently, wait people out until they lose their house rather than paying them fairly for their creative work. You, you could argue... That also, I, I just listened to a podcast about the utter destruction of digital media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how it's all tied. To, I've been listening to a lot of discussion about like the destruction of digital media. Destruction yeah, it's going to crash the whole economy. Like, like basically how the internet has ruined everything. Yeah, I mean, everything. like like the promise and then and then the corporatization and then the like cratering of all these entertainment things. I don't think it's just entertainment because Airbnb is going through a bust. Uber and Lyft yeah. are going through busts. Like the housing market's going to crash again. Like, like this is going to crash the entire economy. So in a way, we are living our own Armageddon currently. It's true. Symbolically. Symbolically and maybe literally. And maybe literally because uh, of uh, climate change. So it's important to keep our heads on a swivel and understand what we're consuming and how we're consuming it because we don't want to miss We don't want to miss a thing. Yeah. Boom. You know what I like about doing a podcast with you, Aviv? You always want to ladder the conversation up to a bigger conversation. And truly, that is like what I feel like. Like every time I write a pop column, yeah, same at Stereo Gum, that is what I try to do. Yeah, because I don't want it to just be like a Wikipedia dump. No, of course not. <laughs> no, no, We're, no. While we compliment each other on our journalism, thank you for listening. <laughs> if you like our show, tell everyone about it, whatever way you can. Like and subscribe. Like, subscribe. Hit the hearts. Hit the hearts. We're trying to hit your hearts. And tune in next week. We'll see you then. Bye.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.